Section 2. The Case of the Pool of Blood in the Pastor's Study by Grace Isabel Colbron and Augusta Groner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Meanwhile, during these hours of anxious seeking, the rumor of another terrible crime had spread through the village, and a crowd that grew from minute to minute gathered in front of the closed gates to the rectory. In front of the church, the closed doors, of which did not open although it was high feast day. The utter silence from the steeple, where the bells hung mute, added to the spreading terror. Finally the doctor came out from the rectory, accompanied by the magistrate, and announced to the waiting villagers that their venerable pastor had disappeared under circumstances which left no doubt that he had met his death at the hands of a murderer. The peasants listened in shuddering silence, the men pale-faced, the women sobbing aloud with frightened children hanging to their skirts. Then, at the magistrate's order, the crowd slowly dispersed, going to their homes, while a messenger was sent off to the nearby county seat. It was a weird, sad Easter Monday. Even nature seemed to feel the pressure of the brooding horror, for heavy clouds piled up toward noon, and a chilly wind blew fitfully from the north, bending the young corn and the creaking treetops, and moaning about the straw-covered roofs. Then an icy cold rain descended on the village, sending the children, the only humans still unconscious of the fear that had come on them all, into the quiet houses to play in a corner by the hearth. There was nothing else spoken of, wherever two or three met together throughout the village, except this dreadful, unexplainable thing that had happened in the rectory. The little village inn was full to overflowing, and the hum of voices within was like the noise of an excited beehive. Everyone had some new explanation, some new guess, and it was not until the notary arrived, looking even more important than usual, that silence fell upon the excited throng but the expectations aroused by his coming were not fulfilled. The notary knew no more than the others, although he had been one of the searchers in the rectory. But he was in no haste to disclose his ignorance, and sat wrapped in a dignified silence until some one found courage enough to ask him. "'Was there nothing stolen?' he was asked. "'No, nothing as far as we can tell.' But, if it was the gypsies, as may be likely, they are content with so little that it would not be noticed. "'Gypsies!' exclaimed one of the men scornfully. "'It doesn't have to be gypsies. We've got enough tramps and vagabonds of our own. Didn't they kill the peddler for the sake of a bag of tobacco? And old Catiza for a couple of hens? Why do you rake up things that happened twenty years ago?' cried another over the table. "'You'd better tell us, rather, who killed Red Betty, "'and who pulled Gianos, the smith's farmhand, down into the swamp. "'Yes, or who cut the bridge supports "'when the brook was in flood "'so that two good cows broke through and drowned. "'Yes, indeed, if we only knew what band of robbers and villains "'it is that is ravaging our village. "'And they haven't stopped yet, evidently. "'This is the worst misfortune of all.' "'What will our poor do now that they have murdered our good pastor, "'who cared for us all like a father? "'He gave all he had to the poor. "'He kept nothing for himself. "'Yes, indeed, 
That's how it was, and now we can't even give this good man Christian burial. Shepherd Yancey knew this morning early that we were going to have a new pastor, whispered the landlord in the notary's ear. The latter looked up astonished. Who said so? he asked. My boy, Ferenz, who went to fetch him about seven o'clock. One of my cows was sick. Ferenz was sent for and told his story. The men listened with great interest, and the smith, a broad-shouldered elderly man, was particularly eager to hear, as he had always believed in the shepherd's power of second sight. The tailor, who was more modern-minded, laughed and made his jokes at this. But the smith laid one mighty hand on the other's shoulder, almost crushing the tailor's slight form under its weight, and said gravely, "'Friend, do you be silent in this matter. You've come from other parts, and you do not know of things that have happened here in days gone by. Yancey can do more than take care of his sheep. One day, when my little girl was playing in the street, he said to me, "'Have a care with Marishka, Smith.' and three days later the child was dead. The evening before Red Betty was murdered, he saw her in a vision lying in a coffin in front of her door. He told it to the sexton, whom he met in the fields, and next day they found Betty dead. And there are many more things that I could tell you, but what's the use? When a man won't believe, it's only lost talk to try to make him. But one thing you should know, when Yancey stares ahead of him without seeing what's in front of him, then the whole village begins to wonder what's going to happen, for Yancey knows far more than all the rest of us put together. The smith's grave, deep voice filled the room, and the others listened in silence that gave assent to his words. He had scarcely finished speaking, however, when there was a noise of galloping hoofs and rapidly rolling wagon-wheels. A tall brake drawn by four handsome horses dashed past in a whirlwind. "'It's the Count! The Count and the District Judge!' said the landlord in a tone of respect. The notary made a grab at his hat and umbrella and hurried from the room. "'That shows how much they thought of our pastor,' continued the landlord proudly. "'For the Count himself has come, and with four horses, too, to get here more quickly.' His reverence was a great friend of the countess. They didn't make so much fuss over the peddler and Betty, murmured the cobbler, who suffered from a perpetual slouch. But he followed the others who paid their scores hastily, and went out into the streets, that they might watch from a distance at least what was going on in the rectory. The landlord bustled about in the inn to have everything in readiness, in case the gentleman should honor him by taking a meal, and perhaps even lodgings at his house. At the gate of the rectory the coachman and the maid Liska stood to receive the newcomers, just as five o'clock was striking from the steeple. It should have been still quite light, but it was already dusk, for the clouds hung heavy. The rain had ceased, but the heavy wind came up which tore the delicate petals of the blossoms from the fruit-trees, and strewed them like snow on the ground beneath. The Count, who was the head of one of the richest and most aristocratic families in Hungary, threw off his heavy fur coat and hastened up the stairs, at the top of which his old friend and confidant, the venerable pastor, 
usually came to meet him. Today it was only the local magistrate who stood there, bowing deeply. "'This is incredible, incredible!' exclaimed the Count. "'It is indeed, sir,' said the man, leading the magnate through the dining-room into the pastor's study, where, as far as could be seen, the murder had been committed. They were joined by the district judge, who had remained behind to give an order sending a carriage to the nearest railway station. The judge, too, was seriously and deeply shocked, for he also had greatly admired and revered the old pastor. The stately rectory had been the scene of many a jovial gathering when the lord of the manor had made it a centre for a day's hunting with his friends. The bearers of some of the proudest names in all Hungary had gathered in the high-arched rooms to laugh with the venerable pastor and to sample the excellent wines in his cellar. These wines, which the gentlemen themselves would send in as presents to the master of the rectory, would be carefully preserved for their own enjoyment. Not a landed proprietor for many leagues around, but knew and loved the old pastor, who had now so strangely disappeared under such terrifying circumstances. "'Well, we might as well begin our examination,' remarked the Count, "'although if Dr. Orzay's sharp eyes do not find anything, I doubt very much if we will. "'You have asked the doctor to come here again, haven't you?' "'Yes, Your Grace. As soon as I saw you coming, I sent the sexton to the asylum. Then the men went into the room which had been the scene of the mysterious crime. The wind rattled the open window and blew out its white curtains. It was already dark in the corners of the room. One could see but indistinctly the carvings of the wainscoting. The light backs of the books, or the gold lettering on the dark bindings, made spots of brightness in the gloom. The hideous pool of blood in the centre of the floor was still plainly to be seen. Judging by the loss of blood, death must have come quickly. There was no struggle, evidently, for everything in the room was in perfect order when we entered it. There is not even a chair misplaced. His Bible is there on the desk. He may have been preparing for today's sermon. Yes, that is the case, because, see, here are some of his notes in his handwriting. The Count and Judge von Cormandy spoke these sentences at intervals as they made their examination of the room. The local magistrate was able to answer one or two simpler questions, but, for the most part, he could only shrug his shoulders in helplessness. Nothing had been seen or heard that was at all unusual during the night in the rectory. When the old housekeeper was called up, she could say nothing more than this. Indeed, it was almost impossible for the old woman to say anything. Her voice was choked with sobs every second word. None of the household force had noticed anything unusual, or could remember anything at all that would throw light on this mystery. "'Well, then, sir, we might as well just sit down and wait for the detective's arrival,' said the judge." "'You are waiting for someone besides the doctor?' asked the local magistrate timidly. "'Yes, his grace telegraphed to Budapest,' answered the district judge, looking at his watch. "'And if the train is on time, the man we are waiting for ought to be here in an hour. "'You sent the carriage to the station, didn't you? Is the driver reliable?' "'Yes, sir. 
"'He is a dependable man,' said the old housekeeper. Dr. Orsay entered the room just then, and the Count introduced him to the district judge, who was still a stranger to him. "'I fear, Count, that our eyes will serve but little in discovering the truth of this mystery,' said the doctor. The nobleman nodded. "'I agree with you,' he replied, "'and I have sent for sharper eyes than either yours or mine.' The doctor looked his question, and the Count continued. When the news came to me, I telegraphed to Budapest for a police detective, telling them that the case was peculiar and urgent. I received an answer as I stopped at the station on my way here. This is it. Detective Joseph Muller, from Vienna, in Budapest, by chance, have sent him to take your case. Muller! exclaimed Dr. Orsay. Can it be the celebrated Muller, the most famous detective of the Austrian police? That would indeed be a blessing. I hope and believe that it is, said the Count gravely. I have heard of this man, and we need such a one here, that we may find the source of these many misfortunes which have overwhelmed our peaceful village for two years past. It is indeed a stroke of good luck that has led a man of such gifts into our neighborhood at a time when he is so greatly needed. I believe personally that it is the same person or persons who have been the perpetrators of all these outrages, and I intend once for all to put a stop to it, let it cost what it may. If anyone can discover the truth, it will be Muller, said the district judge. It was I who told the Count how fortunate we were that this man, who is known to the police throughout Austria, and far beyond the borders of our kingdom, should have chanced to be in Budapest and free to come to us when we called. You and I, he turned with a smile to the local magistrate, you and I can get away with the usual cases of local brutality hereabouts, but the cunning that is at the bottom of these crimes is one too many for us. The men had taken their place around the great dining-table, the old housekeeper had crept out again, her terror making her forget her usual hospitality. And indeed it would not have occurred to the guests to ask, or even to wish for any refreshment. The maid brought a lamp, which sent its weak rays scarcely beyond the edges of the big table. The four men sat in silence for some time. I suppose it would be useless to ask who has been coming and going from the rectory for the last few days, began the Count. "'Oh, yes, indeed, sir,' said the district judge, with a sigh. "'For if the murderer is the same who committed the other crimes, he must live here, in, or near the village, and therefore must be known to all, and not likely to excite suspicion.' "'I beg your pardon, sir,' put in the doctor. "'There must be at least two of them. One man alone could not have carried off the farmhand who was killed, to the swamp where his body was found.' nor could one man alone have taken the bloody body of our pastor. Our venerable friend was a man of size and weight, as you know, and one man alone could not have dragged his body from the room without leaving an easily seen trail. The judge blushed, but he nodded in affirmation to the doctor's words. This thought had not occurred to him before. In fact, the judge was more notable for his good will and his love of justice, rather than his sense of keen intelligence. He was as well aware of this, 
as was anyone else, and he was heartily glad that the Count had sent to the capital for reinforcements. End of section 2